Good morning. Well, that was quick. Just a change of slides and the audience quiets down. Thank you, Luke. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds, our first sort of more regular Grand Rounds of the year. And I hope, therefore, we'll see more of the residents filter in um, from busy units. I see, I see Luke here. Um, so as a reminder, as we get um, sort of real speakers at the podium over the course of this, this series, please silence your cell phones and pagers. Submit your code online for your CME and otherwise um, please leave laptops back in your office if you do need to multitask or desire to multitask. I see other residents in the row, sorry. Um, um, you can stream online and try to multitask from your office and we appreciate your attention for the speaker. Uh, our speaker today um, will kick us off on the right foot um, and remind us of some of the real underlying uh, determinants of health in, uh, for pediatrics for children, which of course then um, uh, has effects across the lifespan. And that is our own Dr. Jim Sargent, who is a native Texan, I believe. Yeah. Nevadan, close, but not quite a Texan. Uh, it, uh, has been with us here at, um, at Dartmouth, Hitchcock and Chad since 1989. After completing his general pediatrics fellowship, he was an undergraduate at the University of Oregon and medical school at Tufts University School of Medicine, trained in residency at Boston City Hospital. We also completed that fellowship with a year detour at Westminster Children's Hospital in London, England as senior registrar. He has been a general pediatrician as he still proudly claims to be, just reminded me this morning, he continues to be a pediatrician, uh, currently holds the Scott M. and Lisa G. Stewart Professorship of Pediatric Oncology, the inaugural chair, and is the director of, I think, Continuous Cancer Control um, in the Cancer Center, as well as the C. Everett Coop Institute, which is what is going to be the focus of his talk this morning. So, uh, Jim, welcome back. I think you've done this annually. No. Well, when I was doing the, putting this talk together, I realized it's, it's probably about five years I think, really? since I talked. Yeah, so it's um, it's a it's a five year competing renewal for the Cancer Center grant. So I've been going over all the stuff that the mm -hmm. Coop Institute scientists have done over the last five years, and I realized in going through that that there's no way I can talk about all the great research that they've done um, in just an hour. So I'm gonna take off and start talking about the stuff that's kind of most new to me and and uh, will be most new to you. And if we get to it, I'll talk about some of the um, updates on some of the old research that I did a long time ago. Um, so um, who raise your hand if you know who C. Everett Coop was. And so most of you raise your hands, but a lot of the younger people, residents and other people in the audience, there, there were some of those folks that didn't raise their hands. And I, I do a course to the undergraduates on, on risk behaviors. And I always ask them when, you know, the first day of the course, these are Dartmouth undergraduates, raise your hand if you've ever heard of C. Everett Coop. None of them raised their hand. So he's... Um, you know, the, the, the people in the audience that lived through the 1980s when C. Everett Cooper, Surgeon General, know how important he was, but um, younger people really don't have an appreciation for that. And so what we're trying to do is uh, keep that alive a little bit by talking about C. Everett Coop um, and trying to do research that epitomizes what he stood for. 
Um, he got his BA at Dartmouth a long time ago, and then he became the first pediatric surgeon uh, in chief at the Children's Hospital. He's really the father of pediatric surgery, he pioneered a whole bunch of different uh, operations on neonates and uh, older kids. Uh, and then in 1982, Ronald Reagan appointed him as the 13th Attorney General, uh, <laughs> Surgeon General. And um, he really became a household name during the 1980s for um, taking on the tobacco industry and talking to the American people about how bad tobacco was. Um, uh, and that was at a time when the tobacco industry had tremendous power over government. Um, and introducing the American public to the AIDS epidemic, which was a thing that was just kind of spreading through um, all kinds of communities in the country at that time. Um, so he's a very important person to Dartmouth, he's a very important person to uh, medicine in general. And um, so since taking over the Coop Institute, we've kind of worked over the mission. Um, our mission is about prevention. Uh, it's about advancing health and well-being through research, education, and policy efforts to protect the public health and prevent disease. Um, and the second part's the most important part. The Institute seeks to mitigate threats posed by unhealthy promotion and use of consumer products, including tobacco, alcohol, highly processed foods, as well as prescription drugs. And I'm just going to take you through two slides that explains why this is so important to health. The first slide talks about the leading causes of death. And what you read about in the news is death due to war. Uh, we study a lot at this institution death due to medical complications. We want to minimize death due to medical complications. Uh, murder takes a big place in the news, but the things that are killing people all over the world are heart attacks, cancers, chronic lung disease, mainly due to cigarette smoking, and these other chronic diseases. Diabetes is getting bigger all the time, as you know, with the obesity epidemic. And if you look at the causes of these diseases, it's not genes, right? It's, um, it's behaviors that lead to things like high blood pressure and obesity, but the behaviors are smoking, uh, poor diet, inactivity, alcohol consumption. Um, those are the things that are driving this chronic disease epidemic. And if we as doctors just focus on delivering care to people that are sick and ignore the root cause of these chronic diseases, we're missing the boat because we're missing an opportunity to actually have a huge impact on the kinds of diseases that are currently clogging our health system. So that's the point um, of a lot of the research that we do that focuses on children to tr try to prevent or delay the onset of some of these behaviors. Um, and uh, so if you go to the Coop Institute website that's been redone, what you'll see is a blog uh, where we're pulling out stories about corporate products that we think you might be interested in. If you're interested in this aspect of uh, disease prevention, you can read about the, the people at the Coop Institute, uh, the two associate directors, you know, Suzanne Tansky and Diane Gilbert-Diamond. I'm going to talk a little bit about Diane's research in a minute. And I want to plug our tobacco treatment conference, which uh, is an annual affair. Um, it happens at the uh, end of this month. It's on Friday, September 28th, um, and we're going to have a really interesting set of events. Um, uh, the, the theme is that it's, it's more than tobacco, um, and we're going to start with uh, uh, 
Doris Gunderson, who's an internist from uh, Denver, who's going to talk to us about what it's like to deliver care in a state where marijuana has been legal for five years. So we're going to talk a little bit about the marijuana epidemic that's been spawned by legalization in um, uh, Colorado and what implications that's had for people that are working in the medical system. Um, the next one will be John Hughes, who's a University of Vermont addiction researcher. He's going to talk about um, uh, uh, what you do with patients who don't want to quit smoking. He's really interested in trying to get patients that don't want to or can't quit smoking to substitute uh, their use of cigarettes for lower-risk products. And we'll talk a little bit about some research to suggest that lower-risk products actually improve health outcomes when smokers switch to them. Um, We'll talk about lung cancer screening, and then Mitch Zeller is going to talk. He's the head of the FDA. The FDA is now regulating tobacco products. He's the head of the branch of FDA that's regulating tobacco. He's going to talk about the plan to get rid of nicotine in tobacco products, especially tobacco products that are combusted, um, and how that might affect public health. Uh, and then uh, we've got uh, a, a really uh, well-published e-cigarettes researcher. It's going to talk about e-cigarettes as, at one. His name is uh, Tom Eisenberg. So it's going to be a really interesting um, conversation that we'll be able to have over, uh, over these topics. Um, hope you can make it. What I'm going to talk about today is some of the behavioral research uh, that um, we conduct. I'm going to talk first about risk behavior trends. And then the thing that we focus on a lot is media and marketing influence, influences on risk behaviors in children and adolescents. I'll talk about, not necessarily in this order, movies and smoking, alcohol marketing and underage drinking, and food ads and eating. And I'll talk a little bit, I hope, about our tobacco regulatory research, multiple product use and e-cigarettes uh, and subsequent cigarette smoking. But let's start with the risk behavior trends. And I'm here to tell you that the risk behavior trends are I, they look pretty good, actually, to me. Um, the Monitoring of the Future project has been sampling uh, a representative sample of high school uh, seniors uh, on their risk behaviors around substance use since the mid-1970s. 1974 is when I graduated from high school. And at that time, about 40% of graduating seniors had uh, engaged in binge drinking in the past month and about 40% uh, of high school seniors were smoking cigarettes. Um, and since then, <clears throat> the trends have been pretty much down, except for kind of a blip in the mid-1990s, where uh, especially smoking went up. This is when I first got funded to study uh, tobacco use in kids. Uh, NCI spent a lot of money on, a, on an RFA, and we were able to get um, my first R01 out of that, out of that RFA. <clears throat> but, but, you know... Smoking continues to decline, even with uh, e-cigarettes becoming prominent. It's declined every year, and it's much less than half of what it was in the 1970s. You might think that uh, with all the school shootings and, and, and things, that kids are dying like crazy from gun violence. But the fact of the matter is that gun violence, uh, this is uh, firearm-related death, and this is homicide, peaked in the mid-1990s. And it was about... You know, about 30 per 100,000 kids were dying, dying of firearm-related deaths at that time, but there's been a dramatic decline since then. And, and at this time, the rate of firearm-related um, deaths is about one-third what it was in the 1990s. Um, the, only, um, the only thing that looks really bad is obesity. 
Um, so if you look at the rate of obesity, uh, the rate of obesity was defined in 1971 to 1974. It was defined as above the 95th percentile for um, body mass index. Um, and that, uh, that criteria is still applied today as the criteria for being obese. <clears throat> and if you apply that criteria today, about um, somewhere between 15 and 20% of kids are obese. So we haven't made great strides in obesity. In fact, the last 20 years has been a striking obesity epidemic, and everybody know, that knows about that epidemic knows that we're now seeing adult adult onset diabetes in our adolescents. Where you know, when I was a resident, we never saw that. So, um, so back to marketing and risk behaviors. We know that marketing influences purchasing behavior, and that the youth market is worth billions of dollars. We know that food companies market processed foods directly to children as young as preschool age. Happy Meals are directed to preschoolers. Um, and we know that tobacco and alcohol companies, while they won't admit to marketing to children, they market to young adults. They market to 20, 21, 22-year-olds. And I can tell you that if you make an ad that's appealing to a 21-year-old, that ad's also going to be appealing to a 16-year-old. So if that ad gets into a venue where a lot of 16-year-olds watch it, they're going to be exposed to the ad, and they're probably going to be influenced. Um, a lot of people don't know that in the U.S., um, First Amendment interpretations in the courts does not allow us to ban marketing by a corporation. Most court, courts now view corporate speech as equivalent to individual speech, and that speech is protected. So any of the marketing constraints that I'm going to talk about for tobacco um, are constraints that were voluntarily agreed to by tobacco companies. So aside from porn, all marketing restrictions are voluntary. So let's talk about food marketing first. This is the really uh, interesting research that's really been pushed forward by my colleagues, Diane Gilbert Diamond and Jen Emon. Food's marketed directly to children, as I said, as young as two years of age. In 2009, fast food chains spent about $150 million on television ads. So when kids watch commercial TV, about 20, uh, about 20 minutes out of every hour is advertising, and about a third of those ads are food ads. Um, and in addition to the money they spend to get those ads onto the television, they spend money to create toys that are given away at the... Uh, point of purchase, right? And they spend another $300 million linking those toys to um, Disney productions and other productions that um, kids will recognize so that they, uh, so it increases the demand for the toys. And what they're trying to do is get kids to nag their parents to take them to McDonald's or to Burger King to get that new, uh, that new toy. Um, so, Food marketing is not regulated by any government agency. It's regulated by the Better Business Bureau. And the arm of the Better Business Bureau that regulates food advertising is called the Children's Advertising Review Unit. Um, it it's, uh, evaluates child-directed advertising for fairness and consistency with their self-regulatory guidelines. And I'm here to tell you that their self-regulatory guidelines read pretty, pretty good. They have a thing on deception. Um, and um, it addresses how children's ads should handle premiums, such as toys. And what it says is that since children have difficulty distinguishing product from premium, advertising that contains a premium, that's one of those toys, should focus the child's attention primarily on the product and make the premium message clearly secondary. 
Now, I'm going to run two ads side by side. On the right, you're going to see an adult-directed ad. And on the left, you're going to see a Happy Meal ad. So these are both McDonald's ads. On the right, the adult ad. On the left is the kids' ad. So I want you to kind of look at both of those ads side by side. You're not going to hear any sound. I just want you to look at the visual imagery of both of those ads. <laughs> And ask yourself that the one on the left is adhering to that guideline on deception. <laughs> so one of the rights clearly about food, right? You, you get that, right? You know, we were we were doing this thing where we were reviewing those ads and we were trying to pull out. Uh, uh, a representative frame from those adult ads. We, were, we started reviewing them at 10 in the morning, and we'd review maybe 10 ads just to make sure that the person that was pulling the ad frame got the right frame. And by 10.30, we were all ready for lunch, <laughs> right? So um, it, was, um, it was Amy Bernhardt that first brought to my attention that the kids' ads were really different because she was the one that was pulling the frames. Some of you may have heard that name, Amy Bernhardt. Um, and, you know, I didn't want to deal with that because I had a bunch of other things to deal with, but she kept bugging me. She said, look, these kids' ads are really interesting. We should look at these kids' ads. And finally she convinced me to have our content coders look at the kids' ads. And what we focused on was how big the food was compared to the screen diagonal. So every time there was food, we measured the biggest piece of food there and we compared that as proportion of the screen diagonal. And we did that with the adult ads, too, for McDonald's. And what we found was that, on average, these things, the diagonal was about 25% for kids' ads, and for adult ads, on average, about 60%. Now, when we published this, it, it got Keru a little bit hot and bothered. They actually issued a public statement. And they said, you know, the fact that these images in the kids' ads are smaller than the adult ads is not dispositive. Anybody know what dispositive means? <laughs> Anybody ever heard that word? I never heard the word, so I looked it up. Well, you could tell that who was looking at it and who was writing the statement, because it's a legal term, right? Wouldn't stand up in a court of law, right? So uh, we knew we were on to something, right? We knew we were on to something, and we knew we had to take the next step. What they said was it doesn't matter that the images are smaller. What matters is how the kids, how a typical kid would respond to the ad. So we got Robert Wood Johnson to fund us to show the ads to kids, right? We got typical kids from around the Upper Valley, and we showed them, uh, <coughs> randomly assigned them to kids' ads and adult ads. And after they saw the ads, and Amy ran this study, um, after, they, after they saw the ads, we said, what did you see? And, they would, and we would just write down everything they said they saw. And not surprisingly, when they saw adult ads, 70% of the time, they said, oh, you know, hamburger, you know, taco, whatever was being shown in the ad. Um, but they only identified food about a third of the time for the McDonald's ads, and a little more for the for the Burger King ads. So, so clearly the kids were viewing that uh, that part of the ad differently. The other thing that was really different was about 50% of the time they identified a toy in the ad, and that was significantly greater than the identification of food. And then at the same time, these these places are you know marketing these healthy foods. That's why you saw apple slices and and milk. And they only identified a healthy food item about 10% of the time, right? So, so that kind of, you know, that, that 
to us, prove that they were being deceptive about their, about their marketing. So that was published, and, um, and uh, you know, we haven't really done anything since then. We're thinking about what we could do from an activist point of view, um, but we haven't really, nothing's really come together about that yet. But in, in the meantime, um, my colleagues have really pushed this research on children's exposure to ads and eating forward in, in, in a really interesting scientific way, and that's what I want to talk about next. I want to talk about eating in the absence of hunger, and then testing biological plausibility. I mean, you can, you can, you can do studies that show that kids eat more when they're exposed to um, advertising, but it'd be interesting to know that their brains respond differently, right? So that's, that's where they've gone with this line of research, and it's really interesting stuff, um, especially in the context of how it relates to genetics. Um, has anybody read Salt, Sugar, Fat? <laughs> Everybody who's interested in food and the obesity epidemic should read that book because what it does is it makes the case for um, um, the engineering of food to be too hard to resist. And it talks about kind of the beginning of the engineering um, of food in the 30s with Kraft cheese making processed cheese all the way up through the, through the 90s where they're making great strides at uh, finding the... Um, uh, the key um, ingredients that would maximize consumer um, interest in eating a, pro a product. But it's about how foods have been engineered to be um, almost irresistible and certainly difficult to stop eating once you start eating them. And that's how it fits into this absence of hunger paradigm. So in the absence of hunger paradigm, you, you look at how much kids eat after they've had a meal. So in, in this particular study, uh, Gilbert Diamond brought, them, brought kids into the lab, these are eight-year-olds, fed them cheese, crackers, and banana until they wouldn't eat anymore. They ate about 150 calories and said, are you full? And they'd say, I'm full, yeah. And then you take them into another room, you plunk them in front of a television, they watch a show, right? And the interesting part of the study is you randomly assign them to either get food ads um, in, you know, at the commercial breaks or some other kind of ad, right? So this is an experimental design. But what you're interested in is how much snack food they eat. So in addition to the TV, there's a bowl of bugles and a bowl of Teddy Grahams, right, on a, on a thing. And, and by weighing the, um, the bowls, after the kids come out of the room, you can tell how much they ate. So what's really interesting about this absence of hunger paradigm, and I'm going to it becomes even more interesting in, this, in the next study I'm going to talk about, is they eat as much of the snack food, absent hunger, while watching TV as they eat the regular food. So if they eat 150 calories with the cheese and the bananas, they'll go in and watch the TV and eat another 150 calories of the snack food. And, um, and the thing that's, that's even more interesting is most of the excess eating of the snack food and the kids that are, expo the kids that are exposed to the food ads eat relatively more, about 20% more, right? And most of that excess is um, there, was, there was one food that was advertised on the television, and it's the eating of that specific food in excess. So there's, it's a, there's a real specificity there, right? It's the food that gets advertised that they eat in excess um, of the kids. That, that Both of them eat a lot, right? Both groups eat a lot. But the group that exposed the food ads eat even more because they're eating more of the food that's being advertised. So um, 
So, my, so, so they went to replicate this, and, and, the, and they brought in a, a genetic component. So Gilbert Diamonds, she came here from Harvard. She's really interested in um, genetic stuff. She, she trained in the quantitative sciences program here. And, um, and uh, so we'll talk a little bit about this next study. Um, but, I, you know, if you're pediatricians, the big thing I want you to take home from this next study is what I'm going to show you right now, right? It has nothing to do with the gene or the response to advertising. So they bring the participants in. Instead of giving them a snack, they say, don't feed them lunch. We're going to give them lunch. And they give them lunch, right? They have a kitchen. They make chicken tenders. They make other stuff. And the kids chow down, right? These are eight-year-olds. They eat about 500 calories of lunch. Are you done? Yeah, we're done. Are you hungry? No. If they're not hungry and they're done, they go into the next room. They start watching TV, and there's four bowls of snack stuff on, the, on a table, right? And they eat another 500 calories, right? That, I mean, that's the thing that just blew me out of the water, right? We're not talking about 10% extra calories due to snack food in this paradigm. We're talking about 50% extra calories, right? And it helps you understand how these engineered foods could, the consumption of these, these engineered foods could lead to an obesity epidemic, all right? So that's the most important take-home point. But the most interesting point from a scientific standpoint has to do with this FTO gene. So how many have heard of the FTO gene? All right. I'm going to tell you about the FTO gene. So there's all this interest in, in genetics, especially in genomics, especially 10 years ago. And you know, I'm at a cancer center. All this stuff on lung cancer genomics, I couldn't give a hoot about that. <laughs> I mean, we know what causes lung cancer, right? It's not genes. It's cigarettes. Right? We know if we get rid of cigarettes, we'll get rid of lung cancer. Who cares what the genomics is? Right? We know how to get rid of this disease. We can end this disease. Right? And the interesting thing about the genomics of lung cancer is you're talking about really small effects. Right? You're talking about odds ratios for a single gene of like 1.03. Now, it increases your risk by 3% or something like that. So I can't get excited about lung cancer genomics, but FTO is interesting. Right? That's a single gene. That's something that a pediatrician could get interested in, right? You know, I didn't, I, we're really interested in genetics because it causes a lot of the diseases that we see in childhood. And these are big main effects, right? You have a copy of the gene or you have a you know, wrong copy of the gene and you got the disease, right? Well, um, with FTO, if people have a single copy uh, of, of the FTO gene, they're, they're uh, at about 30% greater chance of being obese. And if they have two copies of the gene, they're about 70%. This is a big main effect for a gene, right? So of all the gene kind of disease you know, relationships you should know about, you should know about FTO because it matters with uh, respect to obesity. And so what's interesting in the, the eating of the absence of hunger paradigm is that the kids that were exposed to um, uh, food advertising ate about 50 more calories, all right? So that's 10% more calories. Remember, they ate about 480 calories total. But the kids that were exposed to the advertising, while they were watching TV, ate about 10% more. But the really interesting part of this is that there was an interaction. If they didn't have FTO gene, they didn't eat more in response to the advertising. But if they had two copies of the FTO gene, they ate 100. 30 calories more. 
So that suggests that, that there's something about this gene that alters your response to the ad, right? That for some reason, these kids with two copies of the gene, when they get exposed to the ad, are eating more of the food that, that you know, gets advertised. So this becomes really interesting. And to tell the next part of the story, I have to talk about some of the research that um, we did to lead up to this. Uh, it was me partnering with Todd Heatherton and Bill Kelly. You may have heard those names. Um, so about five years ago, we got a grant to bring adolescents into, the, uh, in, 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 into psychology and brain sciences and develop an fMRI protocol for them, whereby we would put them in the scanner and show them images of food and images of other things and look at how their brains responded to the food or the food ad-related images compared to other images. And we did that. And what we found, and this is, um, does everybody know about Altmetrics? So when you get published, there's this company called Altmetrics that ranks the, um, ranks the article based on kind of how much it gets talked about, how much it gets cited. Um, and this is a really highly cited article that was published in um, uh, Cerebral Cortex. That's a you know, pretty, pretty good brain science book. And it was, it was one of the highest scoring outputs. It's like number nine out of 3,000 publica publications in this thing. So it turned out, you know, it's a pilot study. It turned out to be really, I didn't even know this until I started reviewing these articles for the Cancer Center Renewal. Turned out to be a really highly kind of, and, and what we showed was that the, the, that the kids that had more body fat and had higher body mass index had a greater response to the food ad images in the lower brain centers, the brain centers that are, that are uh, responsible for reward, for, for, for kind of mediating reward mechanisms. Okay, so these kids get a bigger reward response on the food ads compared to the other ads uh, than the lean kids. So that's suggesting that maybe something's going on um, in obese kids that's jacking up their reward response. And that sets up, and the other thing that, that they found, which is really interesting, is that when they're watching these ads compared to when they're watching the control ads, parts of their cerebral cortex light up. And these are the motor planning centers for the mouth and the hand. So not only are they getting kind of, kind of a reward response, they're getting hungry, but their motor centers are planning uh, motor actions. Now, we don't know that it's, it's eating motor actions, but you could um, <laughs> kind of implies that, it, that they might be preparing to eat. And, and that might help you understand why at 10.30, after watching all those food ads, we were all ready to go to lunch, right? So, so that sets us up for Diane Gilbert-Diamond's study, which was to look at um, genetic risk for obesity um, as, uh, it, 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 you know, does the FTO gene predict how these kids' brains respond to the food? And uh, this is one that was published in... Um, uh, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences two years ago, um, and uh, it's it's I think some of the most interesting research that we've uh, that I've been part of in the past I don't know five years. So the idea is that um, self-regulation reflects a balance between reward and control, and 
the, the question is, is there genetics that could explain why some children find food cues more rewarding than others? Um, and so um, we bring these 70 children um, into, the, into the lab, um, check their body comp composition, look at their FTO genotype. There's some kids that had two copies, a lot of kids that had just one copy. Um, and then we put them in the scanner, and we show them this show, right? And after the scanner, we ask them questions about the show. You know, what was Sydney's talent? Did you see a jump rope? And they're seeing non-food ads and food ads during the commercial breaks. And the fMRI is sampling their brain in the middle of the food ads and in the middle of the non-food ads. And we're comparing their response in the food ads to their response in the non-food ads. Does everybody get that set up? So um, FTO genotype in these young kids was related to their obesity status. Uh, if they have two copies of the gene, they were significantly uh, fatter than the kids that only had one copy or didn't have any copies. Um, and food commercials were rewarding. This whole kind of lower part of the brain lights up when they watch the food commercials compared to when they watch the other commercials. And what you find is that the difference between the response to the food commercials and the regular commercials is much higher in the kids that have one or two copies of the gene, right? This is a nuclear accumbens response um, than the kids that don't have copies of the gene. So not only are they eating more when they're not exposed to foods, but this is suggesting that they're eating more in part because their reward centers are firing harder when they see these ads, okay? The kids with the, the, kids with the FTO gene. So not only was, were there reward response differences, but there were structural differences. The kids with no um, copies of the gene had significantly smaller nuclear accumbens than the kids with one or more copies of the gene. So since that came out, there have been a lot of other studies that, these, uh, that, that Jan and Diane Gilbert-Diamond have um, published, uh, one looking at parental restriction um, and FTO that there's a lot of interest in parental restriction, right? Well, it turns out, so are, say, general pediatricians, are you telling your parents not to, like, restrict, not to kind of, kind of tell kids to stop eating? That's the recommendation now, apparently, that you're, that you're not supposed to kind of get all involved in, in there. You're not supposed to be really kind of... Um, so it turns out that the kids that eat more in response to parental restriction are the kids that have two copies of the FTO gene. Right? It's not the regular kids. So that's, that's really interesting. Household chaos during infancy and, and, and um, predicts higher weight status. You know, over and above breastfeeding, sleep, and screen time. Who knew that? That's interesting, right? What's going on there? What is it about household chaos uh, besides bad sleep and screen time that leads to higher body mass index, and um, better diet quality during pregnancy is associated with reduced likelihood of an infant born for, to a small for gestational age. That's kind of a replication study, but it's really interesting. So if, if these things are interesting to you, um, I can't talk about it anymore because it, it would exceed my fund of knowledge in this area. I'm not an obesity researcher, but if this is interesting to you, you should invite Diane and or um, Jen back to Grand Rounds to talk about their obesity research. It's really, really interesting stuff.
But the bottom line for pediatricians and parents is food companies market directly to children. They violate their own self-regulation standards when they do that marketing. Food ads prompt children to eat while watching TV, and this could be partially responsible for the relationship between TV watching and obesity. It argues for commercial-free program, uh, programming, like Netflix. There's a lot of that available now to parents. And better regulation, but it's unlikely that we're going to see better regulation anytime soon, given the nature of the courts and the nature of the federal government. Um, research initiatives to be excited about. Diane Gilbert Diamond just scored the first percentile on her R01. She had to go back a couple of times to the well to get that. You know, it's incredibly hard for young researchers these days to get funded. When I was trying to get funded, you could get funded at the 22nd, 23rd percentile, right? So you don't, one in four grants would be funded. Only one in 10 grants get funded now. So you have to get a really good score. She got a, an unbelievable score. She got the first percentile on this. And it's to continue her research in, into the relationship between genetic factors, food cues, um, and self-regulation on excess consumption and adiposity. And then uh, um, Jen Emons, a little earlier in her career, she just got a K award. So she's got five years to study the impact of media use on sleep and obesity risk in preschoolers. She's really interested in how the content of the media that kids watch affects their ability to sleep. So we know that kids at a very young age are watching adult shows with their parents. And it, 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 to, to, to my mind, it has to disturb sleep. You know, when you watch something like Natural Born Killers as a kid with your parents. I'm telling you, this stuff is happening. It happened when I was in practice, right? You know, I saw, I saw a second grader who was having trouble in school, and I asked all the usual questions about, you know, you know, if you moved home, have you, has there been any changes in the family? You know, are you having problems with your husband? Nothing. It was like no on everything. So I was kind of exasperated. I said, I said, finally, I said, does he watch R-rated movies? She said, yeah. I said, well, tell me a movie that you re recently saw with him. And she said, oh, Hannibal. <laughs> and, you know, after I almost fell out of my chair, I said, you know, you shouldn't watch movies like that. He's only in second grade. And she said, and I'm not kidding you, she said, I told him it was all make-believe before we went into movie theater. And so, you know, does it disturb their sleep? I have no doubt that watching Hannibal is going to disturb a second grader's sleep, right? Unless he's already watched Natural Born Killers and a whole bunch of other movies like that, in which case maybe he just doesn't respond anymore. But um, these are things that um, I think we have to pay attention to in the pediatric clinic and help parents understand, you know, what, you know, what they should and shouldn't do um, with media. So that's exciting. The other thing that's really exciting is I talked about this commercial free TV. Uh, Jen Emon has funding now from the Jack and Dorothy Byrne Foundation to pilot test a study where we'll take kids that are watching too much commercial TV and they're overweight and we'll, we'll try to switch them to Netflix, right? So what we expect to see is a lot of pestering. You know, they're going to be pestering their mothers to go to McDonald's and to have gummy Cheerios and all other stuff that's getting advertised on, on TV, we expect once we switch them to commercial-free TV that that will wash out, that the pestering will decline over time. So we want to test that in kind of a pilot setting, see what's going on with that. So those are the exciting things that are going on in obesity research. And I haven't talked about 
tobacco research, I haven't talked about tobacco regulatory research, and I haven't talked about alcohol research. And I can't talk about all four of them. So I'm going to ask you, what, do you, what would you rather hear about? Would you rather hear about alcohol <laughs> advertising and binge drinking, or e-cigarettes and subsequent smoking, or the, you know, the latest in movie smoking? I, I got time for one thing. E-cigarettes. E-cigarettes. All right, let's go to e-cigarettes. So, um, who who knows what tobacco regulatory research means? But before I do that, did anybody see this? Yes. So I just want to tell my alcohol study story. <laughs> All right, so you know we've done we've done some really nice work looking at the relationship between seeing alcohol advertising or exposure to alcohol advertising and and uh, drinking in kids. <laughs> but one thing I can tell you to take home as pediatricians is, if you ask a kid, regardless of what they say about their drinking, if you ask them, you know, if you could drink any any drink you want, can you name the brand that you drink? About a third of 15-year-olds will tell you a brand, and about two-thirds of 20-year-olds will tell you a brand. And if they tell you that, they're double the risk, all else being equal, of engaging in binge drinking. So, so it's a really interesting kind of screening item, especially on kids that are, you feel like there's a reluctance to admit to stuff, because it kind of gets at how receptive they are to the messages that the companies have been um, delivering. So this, the thing about the drinking that's, that, that, that I, I just want to tell you, because the e-cigarettes thing won't take too long. Um, so, so I had this five-year R01 study um, marketing and um, team drinking. And, you know, towards the end of the study, you start talking to the project officers about whether you can get it renewed, whether they'd be interested in your submitting a, a renewal. And I, so I started calling people at NIAAA. And I started getting these weird, odd responses. So one person told me, well, you know, we skate close with the industry. And another person said, well, you know, we work side by side with the industry. And, and uh, you know, we don't really have this initiative anymore. So I pushed that person. I said, you mean to tell me that if I submitted an R01 and it scored in the second percentile, that you wouldn't fund it? And he said, that's what I'm telling you. So I started, you know, so I, I thought, well, it doesn't make any sense to put the time into that. But I didn't really understand what was happening. Well, what had happened was in 2012, uh, a career scientist at NIAAA did the revolving door. He left NIAAA and went to work for Discus, which is the distilled industry, uh, distilled spirit industry lobbying branch. And he had a direct line with the head of NIAAA, right? So he starts undermining this whole, um, this whole line of research by through getting editorials written through these think tanks and pointing these editorials out to the head of NIAAA, inviting the head of NIAAA to Christmas parties that were funded by the alcohol industry. All kinds of shit was going on. At the same time, at the same time there was this Harvard researcher who was proposing a study to look at modest alcohol consumption. 
Now, th this is a study that's a perfect windfall for the industry, right? Because if there's a finding that one drink a day is healthy, they can take that to the bank. If there's a finding that one drink a day doesn't do harm, that, it's, that there's no health effects but doesn't do harm, they can take that to the bank, right? There's, there's nothing about a study like that that would make an alcohol executive unhappy. And, and so the NIAAA was directly lobbying the alcohol industry to fund this study. The alcohol industry made, in, 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 in aggregate, you know, it came from Budweiser, Bacardi, in aggregate made an $80 million donation to the NIH Foundation. And that money through uh, an award mechanism that was not competitive was awarded to the Harvard researcher who had gone to the meetings with the alcohol industry and plugged the study. And um, when, when, when information about that came, became public, uh, the head of NIH had to review it, and the study was shut down, appropriately so, because industry shouldn't have that kind of a relationship with our you know, NIH. Um, so, um, you know, what are we doing? Well, I, you know, I found out that, you know, I had about $80,000 $80, left in the grant. I found out that you can get scientists to work for very little money. So we're doing a supplement in Journal of Study of Alcohol and Drugs, and I'm paying, you know, 10 notable alcohol scientists to summarize different aspects of the literature on alcohol marketing and underage drinking. And we're going to do a Cochrane um, review. And I've learned a lot about reviews with the Cochrane Review. It's really interesting. You have to publish the protocol before you do the analysis. So you can't monkey around with the analysis. You publish a protocol, how you're going to analyze the data, and then you have to analyze it that way. So it's, it's really going to be, I think, a definitive review on the relationship, longitudinal studies about the relationship between alcohol marketing and subsequent drinking patterns. So um, tobacco regulatory research. Um, FDA now regulates tobacco products and regulations based on science. So tobacco regulatory research is about creating the science base that FDA needs to adequately um, regulate the tobacco industry. And it's complicated because there's a lot of products out there now. It's not just cigarettes anymore. Um, so so, so we're, we've got a couple of scientists um, that are really deep into um, helping us understand how kids use products. Um, especially e-cigarettes. Uh, Samir Sonagi uh, and Suzanne Tansky is also helping with this. But um, one of the studies that we published a couple of years ago um, was one of the first studies to show that a lot of kids are using multiple tobacco products. All right. So when 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 I first started studying tobacco in the mid '90s, almost every kids that were using tobacco were using cigarettes. You didn't have to ask them about other stuff. It was kind of window dressing to ask them about cigars. Um, but now what, what, what you find, or what we found in 19, uh, 2011 when we did this study, was that about half of the kids, uh, these are uh, 16 to 21-year-olds, um, that we surveyed were just using single products. And about half of those single product users were cigarette users. Um, but the other half were using either two products or multiple products. And the only thing that's changed about this today is the size of the e-cigarette um, parts has gotten much bigger because e-cigarettes have really kind of e-cigarette use has really taken off with youth. Um, so um, there's two questions with cigarettes. One that we haven't really addressed, and 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 so one is, if kids use e-cigarettes, how likely are they to uh, become addicted to nicotine and continue using the e-cigarettes? 
Um, and there's a lot of people that are working on, on that today. Um, and and I, I think, you know, the, the general finding in the literature is that the kids that are using e-cigarettes that deliver a lot of nicotine are getting hooked on e-cigarettes. So, so the nicotine delivery in these devices varies dramatically from device to device. If you're using a first-generation e-cigarette that doesn't deliver much nicotine, uh, or you're using juice that has no nicotine, you're unlikely to continue using these past the adolescent period. But if you're ingesting a lot of nicotine, you're going to get addicted. Um, the other thing that, um, that um, we started focusing on was um, whether initial e-cigarette use was a risk factor for subsequent cigarette use. So the concern was that if it increases your risk for subsequent cigarette use, that's a really bad thing because when kids start using cigarettes, about a third of them, at least in studies in the 90s, about a third of kids that start using cigarettes will go on to be um, adult smokers that are smoking half a pack or more every day. So we were really interested in that question. We published one of the first studies in JAMA Pediatrics to show that this is a prospective study that said, have you used e-cigarettes at baseline, this is at a time when there wasn't much e-cigarette use, only 16 kids out of 600. Um, but if you looked at subsequently where they were progressed to uh, smoking cigarettes, those kids that used e-cigarettes uh, e -cigarettes at baseline, about 40% of them progressed, whereas it was only about 10%. And we could control for all the other usual risk factors. And despite those really small numbers there, that association held up. And that's why it got published in JAMA Pediatrics, because it was one of the first publications, not because it was the best. But because it was one of the first publications, it's one of the most highly cited. Um, but this led um, uh, Samir to do a meta-analysis, because a whole bunch of studies got published in the next two years. And so um, what Samir did was um, he pulled together uh, studies from other cancer centers, from other pediatricians, um, and asked the question, asked this same question, only turned it into a meta-analysis. Um, and I don't know why this is going backwards. Because I was pushing the wrong button. <laughs> yeah. so, um, so what Samir found uh, when he summarized all these studies, and our studies in there, but it doesn't account for much because there's only a few users. But there were studies in the, in the interim that accounted for a lot because they had a lot of e-cigarette users. These are studies that were done in California and um, Hawaii. And those are two states where uh, the youth use of e-cigarettes really led the rest of the country. So you could study e-cigarette use in kids in those states. And, and uh, found that all else being equal, Friends smoking, parents smoking, all the other risk factors that we think about when we think about cigarette smoking. If a kid's tried an e-cigarette, they're between three and four times more likely to subsequently use cigarettes. And it doesn't matter whether you define that as trying smoking or 30-day smoking. The odds ratio is about the same. Other people have shown that it's the particular, the low-risk kids. It's the kids that are kind of on the low-risk side of the spectrum that are particularly vulnerable to this effect. Um, and, uh, and so uh, I'm, pretty sure, I'm sure that this is something you take to the bank. Whether cigarette smoking has the same meaning today as it did 20 years ago, we don't know. So uh, I, it's really interesting that teen cigarette smoking continues to drop 
even though e-cigarettes use has become high, very prevalent. And I think there's a certain possibility, it's not for sure, but there's a certain possibility that the meaning of cigarettes has changed so much that kids are trying them but not adopting cigarette use the way they were in the past. Um, and I, I guess the concern today is that e-cigarettes will become the nicotine delivery device of choice and that will have as many kids addicted to nicotine as young adults as we had uh, 20 years ago once this kind of whole epidemic gets kind of played out. So that's where we're at with that. Um, the FDA is aware of this research. They're, uh, they're, they move incredibly slowly um, so that it's, it's hard to imagine them keeping up with this epidemic, but they're talking about um, banning certain flavors um, and, um, and uh, um, putting limits on the advertising. They can put limits on advertising. Uh, they have the legislative authority to do that, but if they try to limit advertising, the e-cigarette companies will sue them and there'll be a protracted court battle. And e-cigarette companies could win in court because of the current makeup of the judiciary. So that's the deal with e-cigarettes. Um, um, I didn't get to cover um, the other things. I knew I wouldn't be able to. So, um, I mean, if, if you want to hear more about alcohol, if you want to hear more about uh, my current um, understanding of movies and kid behavior, then I'm happy to come back sometime and talk about that. Thanks, June. That was a great introduction to our grand rounds this year. I am wondering, my children are teenagers. They haven't watched commercial TV outside of maybe a Red Sox or a Patriots game. Kind of forever. They watch Netflix, they're on Snapchat, they're on Instagram. They're not on Facebook because that's our generation that's on Facebook and they don't like it. Um, so they are being influenced by social media influencers, by Snapchat ads that come through, and I'm wondering how much you guys are studying that sort of advertising right now, because, like I said, they haven't watched commercial TV and seen a yeah. Burger King ad in forever, I don't think. Yeah, well, I didn't get to talk about this, but um, Auden McClure did a really nice study um, on uh, alcohol marketing. Uh, let me see if I can find it quick enough to show it to you. Uh, So what, what Auden did was she, um, she's, she's, she, as part of her K award, um, she was, oh, where is that? It's not there. No. No, I don't have it. Um, as part of her K award, she looked at um, um, things like going to websites, uh, noticing it on Facebook, um, and, and, and the kinds of things that you would expect kids would be exposed to if they were kind of doing it on social media. And um, those kinds of exposures were um, linked with um, uh, teen drinking over and above the other risk factors. It, it, studying those exposures, um, internet-related exposures, 
and making causal statements about it is really difficult because they're not passively exposed, they're actively exposed. So the kids that are you know, drinking and they're interested in brands are actively seeking out the alcohol ads. So it's really hard to tease out the chicken and the egg there. But you know that it's a kind of a, a cyclic thing where you know, the ad affects them, they drink a little bit more, they seek out the ad, so it kind of builds on itself. Um, and I don't think we have a good handle on how to, you know, it's not, it's not about non-commercial TV. Um, we just don't have a good handle on any of that stuff. We don't know what to tell parents about when to get smartphones for their kids. I mean, really, right? We have our own ideas about it, but nobody's really kind of um, done any really good research on what happens to kids when they get smartphones early versus smartphones late. So there's just a tremendous amount of stuff that needs to be, you know, we're really interested in this whole idea that kids that are multitasking kind of on multiple media fronts and have media in their bedroom are not sleeping as much and, and um, at higher risk for obesity because they're not sleeping. But exposure ads, it's really, it's really hard to get, it's really hard to get your hands around it, right? Jim, would it be fair to say that um, residents or students who might want to work with Jen or Diana or Adam or Sue um, would find receptivity? But yeah, sure. You know, anybody who's interested in this line of research should talk to the investigators themselves or um, talk to JJ. Stand up, JJ. So JJ kind of is one of the really important people that helps us run the Coop Center, and we call her the we call her the mom because she kind of tells the Coop scholars what to do and helps kind of direct kind of how people interdigitate with all the research and the researchers. Yeah. Great introduction and a great start to the year. I'm going to have a good uh, day. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah.